from Integral Life, welcome to Everyone is Right. In this episode of The Ken Show, we turn our attention to the path of waking up, taking a guided tour through the temporary states of consciousness that include everything from emotional states to chemically induced states to the direct, immediate experience of timeless reality. Listen as Ken and Corey explore these states of consciousness in detail, revealing an infinitely renewable source of energy, resilience, and creative inspiration that rests at the very center of you. This piece was excerpted from the full three-and-a-half-hour discussion, available on our premium podcast over at IntegralLife.com. You'll definitely want to check out the rest of the conversation, where Ken explores magic mushrooms and the politics of consciousness, the neoliberalization of the human potential movement, the many challenges of mapping out the subtle realm, the nature of magic, the origins of evil, and the meaning of integral embodiment. Sign up today and get your first month for just $1, which will give you access to the full archive of perspectives and practices. And now, on with the show. My name is Corey DeVos. I am joined, as always, by one of my favorite human beings in the world, Mr. Ken Wilber. Ken, how you doing, man? Good, my friend. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. I think we've got a really fun episode today. And I'll tell you, today's, today's been a really great um, ILP day for me because I just spent the last few hours shoveling a ton and a half of uh, garden soil into a new garden bed that I built for Angie. So that took care of my body module and my relationships module. There you go. Now I'm going to be flexing my heart, my mind, uh, and my spirit with you today. So, so today's sort of a uh, a, a full day here, um, a full day of practice, because today what we're going to be talking about is uh, the many varieties of integral spiritual experiences. Um, Ken, as most people know, you just wrote a, a, an amazing new book, uh, one of your great big like thousand page monstrosities called The Religion of Tomorrow, um, where you shine a lot of, you know, you bring a lot of new light uh, to these questions and to this material and to really the issue of what is the future of spirituality and religion uh, on this planet. And it's really fascinating. And today we are going to be digging into some of those, some of those insights. Um, so I figured, you know, what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be talking about a few terms that might be uh, unfamiliar to people who are new to integral and new to your work. Terms like gross, subtle, causal states, um, as well as things like bodies, possibly energies. Um, we'll save an in-depth exploration of things like subtle energies for a future episode. Uh, but I'm, I'm hoping that just to get us started, maybe you can give us a quick sort of crash course here, um, running through all the, you know, the major varieties of integral spiritual experience available to us in just a few minutes, as only you can, um, and just sort of get us started here. Sure. Um, and one of the first things to notice about spiritual engagement is that there are at least two quite different types. And these are not often distinguished. And in some cases, one of them isn't even really understood that well. But these two types have to do with growing up and waking up. And so growing up is simply the ongoing process that human beings go through as they grow and develop through any of their multiple intelligences 
in terms of stages of increasing differentiation, integration, wholeness, awareness, and so on. We have enormous amount of evidence for these developmental processes, and it does look like there might be upwards of a dozen or so multiple intelligences. So we have cognitive intelligence, emotional intelligence, aesthetic intelligence, mathematical intelligence, but it also appears we do have something called spiritual intelligence, and that is simply how we think about our ultimate concern. Or even if we're trying to think about what's ultimate reality, is there an ultimate reality? Whenever we think things like that, we're engaging our spiritual intelligence. In the past, that spiritual intelligence has gone through stages, and there are dozens of different names for these stages. So if you don't like the names I use, don't get upset. There are plenty of other uh, names. We're um, just using Gene Gebser's um, these stages, one version of the names is moving from archaic stage to magic, to mythic, to rational, to pluralistic, to integral stages of development. And spiritual intelligence, when it was at magic and mythic stages of development, produced a large, large body of that which is still today considered to be fundamental religious texts and orientations. And so these are things like just, for example, the Bible. And what you find in the Bible are a series of magic and mythic statements. So Moses really parted the Red Sea and Christ was born from an actual biological virgin and Elijah went straight to heaven in his chariot while still alive um, and that kind of thing you find those sorts of mythic statements in, in, in most of the world's great religions that were created at that time. So Muhammad flew to the moon on his horse, chopped the moon in half with a sword, etc. These are myths that are of essentially the same status as something like Zeus or Apollo uh, or Aphrodite or Santa Claus, or the Tooth Fairy. Um, and, but these are things that increasingly, as development has continued into more rational and pluralistic and higher stages, that are taken to be just not very real. And when we have the big um, sort of critique of religion by people like the new atheists, that's what they always pick on is the ridiculousness of these mythic statements and how they're clearly not true and how they've been replaced by science. And that's what we need if we want humanity to go forward in any sort of positive um, way and not with all the downsides that have been created by religious jealousy and religious wars and religious absolutistic belief systems and so on. All of that's true, all of that is there. Everybody born today is born at square one in these developmental stages. They all have to move through them. So everybody will go through periods of magic and mythic thinking as they're growing up. And that's fine. Um, some people, adults, still maintain a mythic orientation they believe that that really is true. 
and it gives them a great deal of meaning. There's another type of religious engagement, and it's not a matter of belief in a belief system, magic, or mythic. It's rather a direct psychotechnology of consciousness transformation. And this is an entirely different type of approach to spirituality, and it results in entirely different um, experiences and realizations for human beings. So what you're doing here is you're actually undertaking a type of interior scientific experiment where you are engaging in um, the um, exercise of your own awareness, exploring its deeper and deeper and deeper dimensions until most of the great traditions maintain if you do that adequately, you'll eventually run in to basically mystical states of, of experience that are direct, immediate, first-person experiences with something like an ultimate ground of, of being. And this presents itself with such certainty and such um, undeniability that they're easily the most certain types of experiences that human beings have. So, of course, we can question them, but they're, for people who have had those types of experiences, and they're known as enlightenment, awakening, metamorphosis, satori, moksha, and so on, people who've actually had those experiences will say, yes, it's the most certain experience I've ever had. Can I question it? I suppose so, but it's the item that I would least question about anything else in my experience. This is more real than the table I'm looking at right now, for example. So that's the type of reality that come with these experiences. Now, it turns out that if we look at all the great traditions that have studied these types of consciousness states and the type of awakening or enlightenment or satori that you can have with these states, um, there are several different ways that they're classified. There are a lot of very broad similarities, a lot of family uh, similarities between them. Um, one of the ones that I use, and I don't insist on using this, and there are others that I've also used, but this is one of the uh, simplest, and it covers essentially um, the whole broad territory that we're looking at. And we also has a, um, a little bit of authority because it's fully accepted by Vedanta Hinduism, for example, but it's also fully accepted by Vajrayana Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and so when you find things that Buddhism and Hinduism agree on, that's pretty interesting. And there are also some Neoplatonic schools in the West that uh, use these same types of states. And what they're referred to in general is gross, subtle, causal, and in some Sanskrit terms, Turiya and Turiyatita. Um, gross is simply the manifest physical realm that we see now, the example that's always given by these traditions for an example of gross consciousness. It's just everyday, normal, waking consciousness. Just what you see right now when you 
look at the table, look at the computer, move your chair, eat dinner, that kind of thing. Then there's a whole subtle dimension. And as the name implies, it's just much subtler types of awareness than you get with this sort of hard rock, third person, um, finite kind of realities. Uh, example that's always given of subtle states are things like the dream state. Um, but there are lots of others. There are meditative states that have these sort of subtle dimensions. Um, people have these types of experiences themselves um, in acts of creativity or even daydreaming. Um, so these subtle states are in, uh, largely interior um, and very subtle type of phenomena, but they also are taken to be a very real reality. And this also comes out when you do start having mystical experiences related to those realities. Then the third is often called causal. The Tibetans call it very subtle. But the point is these first three states, gross, subtle, and causal, are states that are referred to as relative states. And the reason for that is they actually have a beginning in time, they stay a bit, then they go, then the next state comes on, stays a bit, has a beginning and an end, exists through time, and then it goes and the next state will arise. So what's typically given as an example of a causal state is deep dreamless sleep. And so you can see how those three alternate, waking to dreaming to deep sleep, back to waking, to dreaming, deep sleep. So every 24 hours, we go through this entire cycle. And one of the things that happens with interior contemplative meditative practices is you start opening yourself to those states of consciousness. And that's part of the benefit that meditation contemplation has because each of these states had their own extraordinary type of uh, potentials and capacities and creative abilities and talents. And so they're really a source of enormous number of treasures. And most people just seal them out. Um, they just sort of pass out from the waking state and then when they're dreaming, they're not aware they're dreaming. Um, and then when they're in deep dreamless sleep, of course, they're not aware they're in deep dreamless sleep. But then they wake up the next morning and they go, oh, wow, I slept well, or oh, I had a nightmare, or whatever it is. They clearly remember that their, whatever their sense of self was, it was present in those days. They just don't have any real memory of it. One of the things that starts happening as you meditate is that consciousness starts moving in to these states in an aware fashion. So one of the things that can start to happen is you start to have lucid dreams. So while you're in the dream state, you'll still be conscious and you'll be aware you're in the dream state. And then you can actually alter a lot of the things about the dream state and that in itself can become quite um, an extraordinary type of spiritual um, realization and, and spiritual wisdom can come from that. So these are states that are taken to be increasingly subtler. In a certain sense, that means more spiritual. 
but they're still relative states and they're looked at that way. Then there are the two higher states and these are referred to as ultimate states. And these are ultimate because they are literally ever present. So they don't really come into being and go out of being. They are ever present. They are constantly existing. They're in every person's awareness right now. All of them, 100% of these states is in every person's consciousness right now. Of course, again, most people don't recognize that. They're not aware of it. And most of the great, great contemplative and meditative traditions, one of their main aims is to help people recognize the always already existence of these ultimate states of consciousness. So there are two of them. And in a certain sense, one is higher than the other. But in another sense, they're two aspects of the same ultimate state, which is why they're both referred to as, as ultimate. But the first is just named Turiya, which is a Sanskrit term that literally just means the four. And it's a pretty unimaginative name for this state because it just means the, the first three states, gross, subtle, causal. And so what should we call this one? Well, we'll call it the fourth. How, you know, how imaginative is that? Um, but this is a permanent state because it's pure consciousness itself as it's witnessing everything that's arising. And this is present in every state of awareness you have, including sleep and deep sleep. And so it's just an ever-present, constant presence of awareness of whatever's arising. It's not a content of awareness. It's sometimes called consciousness without an object. It's just the pure witnessing awareness itself. And it can exist by itself without any objects at all. And this is uh, certain states of consciousness that a person can get into. It's just in this pure, absolutely unmanifest, radically formless state. This is pure awareness with no objects arising whatsoever. And this is held to be, often when people have a profound satori or profound realization, one of the things that they'll notice is that they have an enormous sense of freedom because when they become identified with this pure witnessing awareness, they're not identified with any object or anything or any manifest item, including their own mind and body. Those have dropped. So all the pain and suffering and agony that can occur to all these objects, you're not identified with any of that. So you have sensations, but you're not those sensations. You have feelings, but you're not those feelings. You have thoughts, but you're not those thoughts. You're free of all of them. And that's a profound, profound realization. It's often called emancipation or the great liberation because it really is a freedom from an identification with any manifest finite moral thing. So that is, is one of the major breakthroughs 
for this type of waking up spirituality. And then as you pursue that pure witness, if you go into it really deeply, the witness is a stance of, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not this, I'm not that. The mystics call it nete, nete, which means not this, not that. It's sometimes called the bi-negativa, the path of negating everything and identity with everything. But as you push into that, there's a flip that can occur. And Zen calls it the bottom of the bucket drops out. And what that means is that you have a bucket full of water and that's sort of consciousness. And it seems to have kind of a bottom. So even when you're witnessing, everything for the witness always appears in front. So you're always witnessing, it's always arising in front. If you have a dream, you're witnessing it, it's arising in front. When the bottom drops out, the witness itself disappears, so to speak. And it's just one with everything that's being witnessed. So you no longer witness the mountain, you are the mountain. And you no longer witness birds flying, you are the birds flying. You no longer feel the earth, you are the earth. And this is called Turiatita, which simply means beyond Turia. So it's just the state moving beyond the witness. It's often called things like ultimate unity consciousness or awakened non-dual awareness, non-dual meaning not two. So the subject and the object are not two. Infinite and finite are not two. Emptiness and form are not two. And so this is really sort of the ultimate wholeness, ultimate oneness that human beings can have. And so far, as we look throughout the different cultures and around the world, that seems to be the most inclusive, most whole, um, highest, if you will, state of consciousness that we have. So these are all fundamentally important types of waking up. And human beings can have these in, and can have variations of these type of mystical unity experiences in any of these five realms. Now, of course, what's happening in something like the gross or the subtle or the causal is that those are relative states and so the mystical experiences will tend to be relative, meaning they'll happen in a very strong way, they'll stay a while, and they'll eventually fade. They can be life-changing, though. People have one of these experiences, and they are changed forever. It's, it's absolutely a profound experience. And in all cases, it lets people know that there is something more than just this passing finite torture-inducing chamber that they're used to living in. Um, what seems to happen is each of these realms have phenomena that are arising in these realms. So in the gross realm, you have, of course, just the whole waking state realm, nature, Gaia, star, all of that. And those are phenomena in the gross state. There's also something that happened 
can happen to consciousness where the subject-object duality temporarily suspends. And when that happens, you get essentially what, at least recently, has been referred to as a flow state. Now, a flow state just means that wherever you are, you are one with the environment that you're in. So if you're playing baseball and you get in a flow state, then all of a sudden you're one with the baseball, time slows. People report that they can actually count the stitches in the baseball as it's coming at them at 90 miles an hour. Um, and that, that um, type of flow state in the gross realm, well, in, in its strongest form, can produce uh, a genuine unity with the whole gross realm. And that's called nature, mysticism. That's a very real mystical state. And it's also one of the most common for a very large number of people. Um, recent polls show that upwards of 60% of the population has had these nature unity experiences. And they're profound. And they just mean, you know, extraordinary um, changes in their lives. Always for the better, by the way, uh, with very few exceptions. Yeah, Ken, I'm, I'm reminded of Edgar Mitchell's descriptions of, uh, what does he call it, the overview effect that astronauts often have when they see the Earth in space for the first time, which does yeah. seem like a very sort of, um, you know, all-encompassing, overwhelming sort of appreciation of, of gross-level reality. And, you know, there might also be some subtle mixed in there, too, but... You know, what, one of the things that I, that I like to think about is how this whole space tourism thing, one of the things we might be doing is actually by sending some of the richest, most elite people up into space, maybe they're the ones who are going to start having these, you know, really amazing, overwhelming experiences and come back and actually want to do something to, you know, maybe help out a little bit more on this planet. Yeah. Edgar Mitchell, who's one of the many astronauts that had that experience, particularly the ones that did extravehicular activity and actually got out and then we're looking at the earth um it was well over half of them had those types of experiences and edgar mitchell said flat out the most significant thing that's going to come from the space program is the number of people that have awakened to this consciousness right. that's what's coming from the space program it was like what so he went on to help found uh institute of noetic sciences um and and spent the rest of his life studying these phenomena. So those are very real. Um, but they, you can still continue these types of flow state unities with these other states. So as you get into subtle, one of the things that you find in subtle is there are a lot of phenomena in the subtle realm. And that includes a lot of imaginative things, things that seem... Um, uh, are often expressed in actual mythologies, things like centaurs or unicorns or flying horses or all sorts of things, monsters, this, that, and the other. But then there are also things that appear, can appear spiritual and be sort of angels, um, bodhisattva types, um, spiritual beings, um, even um, in some cases um, an example of what seems to be 
an ultimate, you know, personification of God himself or herself. Uh, and these can appear. Now, I can use that as a reminder that even though these are in some ways um, transcendental states, it's still occurring in the four quadrant reality. Because if you look, for example, in all the mystical tradition in the West, you will often find descriptions of beings like angelic beings um, and usually a hierarchy of um, archangels, angels, and, and on down the line. Um, many of them have wings, but not one of them has 10,000 arms. But if you go to Tibet and look at almost any of the icons of these kinds of Bodhisattva or angelic beings, very common that they have 10,000 arms. Avalokiteshvara, for example. So the cultural relative this want to use that example to say, see, they're not really real. They're just cultural constructions. But that's the incorrect interpretation. These are um, real phenomena from this real subtle dimension being interpreted as it will be through the cultural lens in which it's occurring. And we'll see that later as we talk um, about the politics of consciousness. Um, so if you have a flow state with one of those ultimate deity figure to, figures in this subtle state, then that will be a kind of deity mysticism. And that'll be your sense of being one with the Lord itself or one with the goddess or one with this ground of all being. And that obviously can also be profoundly, profoundly life-changing um, experience. And then as you get into the causal, there's always a little bit of complexity when you're talking about the causal. And uh, I'll do this just very quickly. Because what it amounts to is it gives you really sort of two different aspects of the causal. What the causal itself is, technically, is when the universe first manifests out of a radical emptiness, a radical formlessness, then the first forms that it creates as it's manifesting this world, well, the Greeks called those archetypes. And that's what an archetype was. That's not the way Jung used the term archetype. Jung had archetypes located at the other end as early forms in evolution, whereas the real archetypes are the first forms in involution. As spirit starts to manifest, it has to take on form. The first form it takes on are causal archetypes. And they're called archetypes because they're forms on which all the other forms are based. And it's called causal because it's the cause of all the other forms that are based. So there is such a thing as archetypal mysticism. You can actually get plugged into various types of archetypal phenomena. For Plato, for example, it was simple uh, geometric forms, triangles, squares, octahedrons. Um, Jung 
um, well, Whitehead included things that he called eternal objects like colors. But whenever, if you've ever been in a meditative state of just pure unmanifest absorption, and you start to come out of that, the first things you see or the first things you hear or the first things you visualize, those are archetypes. So you can have a flow unity with these really, really fundamental archetypal forms. And that's a profound experience because you're plugging into, in a sense, the real foundation of the manifest world itself. And that can be very, very profound. Ken, would, would, would perspect, things like perspectives and quadrants, would that count as sort of some of these causal archetypes? Well, they're going to, those archetypes are going to uh, um, manifest in quadrant forms in any event. And so for the same way that when we talked about um, uh, subtle figures having 10,000 arms, Right. They just show up, but those 10,000 arms are already part of the cultural interpretive um, uh, landscape that's there. Right. And this is true for archetypes. Even though they are these primary forms, as soon as they're manifesting, they're manifesting in a four-quadrant fashion. And so we're going to see that happen all around. And that's true pretty much all the way up, all the way down except when you're in perfectly unmanifest, formless realms. Mm. And there's no objects, no quadrants, no levels, no, none of that. But as soon as any manifest item appears, it shows up in quadrants. And those quadrants, as they exist even one nanosecond in time, they'll develop levels because that's simply how the universe fits together. It has to transcend and include the previous moment, and that will give you a level. And so these are present all the way through these, through these states. So what, but then one of the things that happens in the causal is that because it's at this very, very precise point between purely unmanifest and the beginning of manifestation, then in a certain sense, the very highest part of the causal in itself is essentially formless. It's right where it's starting to move into form. And so that's why the common example that both Vedanta and Tibetan Buddhism give for causal is deep dreamless sleep, deep formless sleep. That's what they're talking about, is that very, very highest causal. And so I usually, um, if I'm actually trying to give some sort of sophisticated cartography of these things, I'll always divide it into low causal and high causal. And low causal are the archetypes that are actually forming. And high causal is just this point of formlessness where you will have deep, dreamless sleep. So, but you can have, we talked about archetypal mysticism, and you can have this formless mysticism. And so one of the things that I will sometimes do 
in a sense, precisely because the causal is primarily all of these archetypal forms. As I look at Turia, and Turia really is a purely unqualifiable, without form, without characteristics, without quality, just a pure awareness itself and not any content of awareness, then that's very, very close to that formless causal reality. And so I'll sometimes just take Turia, and if I'm just giving a shortened version, I'll say gross, subtle, causal, non-dual, because I'm putting the Turia into that causal part. And technically, you have to be careful because Turia is ever-present and causal is intermittent. Right. But uh, I usually explain that someplace in a footnote, and I've explained it at least several uh, different places. Um, but then when we get into Turia itself, and that is just the pure witness. That is, we are disidentifying with everything that's arising. You see that mountain, but you're not that mountain. You see this computer screen, you're not this computer screen. You're aware of your body, you're not this body. You have thoughts in the mind. You're not that mind. You're pure witnessing awareness. And it has the same relationship to thoughts that are occurring inside as it does objects that are occurring outside. It sees both of them equally. So it's not more identified with thoughts than it is with objects. It's radically disidentified with all of them. So a thought arising in the mind is no more what I am than this computer arising in front of me. I'm radically disidentified with every single thing and event that's arising. And this is a, because of that, the consciousness itself is a pure emptiness. And this is a state that you see um, what's often called apophatic mysticism in the West will try to get into. And the most um, classic example of that is the cloud of unknowing. Mm. And so the cloud of unknowing is a, is a radical nete, nete, not this, not that. And it's worth reading for well anybody, but certainly for a Christian, because it's a flat out assault on identifying that pure, unqualifiable awareness with any content at all. All content is denied. So it just has a list of things. God is not love. God is not light. God is not care. God is not compassion. God is not liberty. God is not freedom. God, I mean, it's just on and on. And everything you can think of is denied. And you, if, you, if you really don't know what they're doing, you just sit there and go, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> but what they're doing is getting you to just push away from any identification with anything and realize just who's aware. What's the awareness of all of those ideas? You say God is love. God is who's aware of that statement. God is love. It's not the statement. 
It's the awareness of the statement. You say God is light. God is not light. God is the awareness of the statement. God is light. And so you have to get rid of all of that or you're just going to be identified with concepts. You're going to have a whole head full of thoughts and ideas about God is this or spirit is that or I should be loving everybody. All of those are categorically wrong. Those are exactly what you are not. And so one of the ways that I often try to get people to get a sense about this is I'll say, um, you have some idea of who you are now. So just make a list or just in your head, um, just describe who you are. So you might say, well, okay, I'm this tall, I weigh this much, uh, I got an education here, I work at this job, I get paid this much money, I'm in this relationship, um, I live in this house, I drive this car, I, you know, whatever it is, just make this whole list. And then notice that there are actually two selves involved in doing that. One is this self that you've described, that you've seen as an object. And then there's the self that's actually doing the seeing the self that's actually doing the describing. Now, that's the real self. All the things that you've described are just objects. They're things that can be seen. They're not even a real seer. They're not even a real self. They're just an object of awareness. They're not the awareness itself. So who is actually writing down all of that stuff? Who's aware of all of that stuff? That awareness is what you are. All those things you wrote down, that's what you're not. That's a list of categorically your false self, your object self, your seen self. It's not the seer. It's not the true self. It's not who you really are. That's Turiya. That's the pure witness. And that is like these ultimate states that's present in every moment of awareness you have whether you're aware of it or not, that's what your awareness is. It's just pure witnessing awareness, this registering these things that are arising. And you can indeed have a flow state unity with that pure awareness. And then you get this sense of um, consciousness only, or just one mind type of awareness, um, a type of consciousness in which everything is a manifestation of or a modification of. And it's this pure awareness that's the ultimate reality. It's unchanging. It's unqualifiable. Daniel P. Brown refers to it as boundless, changeless awareness. And that's what it is. It has no limitations and it doesn't change. It's the same awareness moment to moment to moment. People can get a sense of this by focusing on their own pure I amness, because that I amness is that pure witness. But it means just the I amness, not I am Ken or I am this or I am a doctor or I am, no, none of that. Just I am, the simple fundamental feeling of I amness. And that doesn't change. That again, that's boundless, changeless. You, might not remember what you were doing five days ago, but there was a I amness there that was aware of that. And you might not remember what you're doing 10 years ago, but there was an I amness that was present there. 
And this is the same I amness where Christ said, before Abraham was, I am. It's that timeless, ever present I amness that is your pure witness. And so that's often called the true self or the real self. Um, and we'll see later how that's actually embodied and what that embodiment means. And then finally, there is this further movement where this witness actually becomes one with everything that's witnessed. And that is a sense of overwhelming unity and overwhelming fullness. Whereas a sense of the witness is one of radical freedom, radical letting go, radically not attached or identified with anything that's arising. And so it's a complete freedom from the entire manifest world. And that brings the term that's used most often in the, in the Eastern traditions is ananda. It's a blissful release. There's an enormous joy that I'm no longer trapped in the cave of shadows. I'm free of that. And that freedom carries an enormous sense of joy, of happiness, of bliss. And that's not dependent upon anything happening in the exterior world. It's self-generated bliss of its own radical freedom, its own infinite freedom from any sort of limitation or attachment or grasping or any uh, of that. Now, what happens when you move into Turiyatita is that sense of freedom because you're standing back from everything. That's still there, but it gets plugged in to being one with everything, and that's a sense of fullness. And the emotion that comes with a sense of fullness is love. So here, what you start to get is, an, is a loving oneness with everything that's arising. And you're no longer suffering from it because you already have this freedom that the witness has established. You've already broken your specific identity with any one thing or number of things. So because you're not identified with any single thing, you can be identified with everything. And that's what this ultimate fullness is. But because of that, you're not open to the slings and, and arrows of just individual things that would come along and hurt you, which is what your normal conventional self did. Um, it was identified with its body, its thoughts, its career, its ideas. And those were all separate from the rest of the world. And those two just kept smashing into each other all the time. So objects would come, stay a while, torture you, and leave. And that was the course of objects in your life. None of that happens with freedom, which is the feeling of, or the feeling of the freedom of the witness is joy or happiness or bliss. And the feeling of the fullness of one case is love. And we'll come back to those feelings because those are the actual embodiment aspect of these higher states. So um, I think that's uh, uh, essentially the, one of the quickest kind of 
summaries I could give of the varieties of waking up side of spirituality and not just the growing up multiple intelligence uh, aspect of it. So. Oh, that was gorgeous. I'm, uh, you know, I find myself kind of, I'm, I'm aware right now that I have a choice. I can either sit here and just sort of grin like an idiot for the next couple hours, or I can try to pour my awareness back into my nervous system and, and, and try to ask you some more questions. Um, no, that was absolutely beautiful. Thank you so Great. much. Um, so, and, and Ken, you know, another really interesting sort of factor with all that is, is with these, um, these realms of gross realms, subtle realms, causal realms, another major addition that you've, you've sort of brought online recently is the fact that each of these can be experienced and enacted through first person, second person, and, and third person perspectives. Right. Which just adds a whole other sort of layer um, onto how we, you know, think about and metabolize uh, these experiences and the types of meaning that they generate for us. Yeah. And um, one of the things that it can also be a little bit confusing, and we'll touch on this just a little bit more in a minute, and that is that many of the traditions, including um, contemplative Christianity and Sufism, um, Vajrayana Buddhism, Advaita Vedanta, um, they'll often, if they're just trying to sort of summarize the overall stance that we have available to us for enlightened awareness, they'll collapse them into sort of three major broad realms. So in, in Buddhism, for example, it's called the Nirmanakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Dharmakaya. And what these mean is Nirmanakaya always means the gross realm. Sambhogakaya always means the subtle realm. And then Dharmakaya, when just those three are used, it always means causal, turiya, and turiyatita. So those all get kind of mushed in. You kind of have to remember that because otherwise it can get real confusing. Now, some of them will go ahead and say, We'll add a fourth, and then when they do that, then causal will just go back to being causal. The fourth that they'll add, Tibetan Buddhism, for example, uh, beyond Dharmakaya, then there's Vajrakaya. And now Vajrakaya means Turiya and Turiyatita. Now there's Vajrakaya, now means the ultimate, and these, but these others are all important. Because one of the major things that you get out of truly sophisticated spiritual traditions, and it's one of the things that we'll be talking about, is that they really do mean to integrate all of these bodies. So the point is, if you're at Varshra Kaya, you're including Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Ramanakaya. Mm. Um, and just to give um, a little bit of a hint away, since we're going to be talking about embodiment, the word Kaya in each of those cases, that means body. That's a direct translation of body. These are talking about bodies. These areas are talking about embodiment. They go with consciousness, but consciousness always is embodied, always, even at the very highest state. So we'll come back and see what that means.